these things always scare me. You know, I, uh, I almost flunked Christian ed of adults in school because I couldn't figure out projectors. So clipping this on isn't too bad. I'm glad to be here this morning. I am, for most of you, one of those dreaded creatures, the unknown chapel speaker. Now, if a speaker gets up here and he's written books, you know, he's got a reputation, you hear the name, oh yeah, let's go hear so-and-so because he said this or he said that. And you come in with some sort of expectation. However, I know from bitter experience as a Christian college student, I had a school that had chapel five, count them, five times a week, that there were often speakers that came in that you just had no idea how they got there. And you were always a little afraid when the president said, today's speaker is a real friend of the college. Because all that meant is that they give money. doesn't mean he can speak. It just means he, you know, they've given money. And uh, I have to confess that chapel was not, at least when I first went to college, not one of the highlights for me, probably because of my attitude more than anything else. I was a rather irreverent chapel attender. As a matter of fact, some friends of, of mine and I in our unit used to have a chapel gong show <laughs> that we'd listen very, very closely to everything that the speaker said. And any time they made any mistake at all, we just kind of looked down the pew at each other and go, like that, you know, <laughs> let them know that we didn't really appreciate what they had to say, at least among ourselves. I, I hasten to add that my attitude did improve even if the speakers didn't. I, <laughs> it's, um, it's fun to be up here, though. I've got to tell you that I'm very thankful for the opportunity. I'm not up here because I've written books, because I haven't. I'm not up here because I'm famous for anything, because I'm not, except for the fact that, at least for my family and friends, they all saw me lose on Jeopardy. Um, that's my one claim to fame. I've been on national television. And as the song by Weird Al says, I made a fool of myself and disgraced my family for years. The, I did get the final Jeopardy question right, but it was kind of embarrassing because I'm a pastor and the subject was gambling. So, <laughs> Some people may wonder how it is that I did get here, and I will, I'll be very quick to answer. It was bribery. Uh, I... <laughs> Really, I am excited about being here because you represent to me the hope that the church of Jesus Christ has. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity when the, the uh, pregnancy center called and asked if I would represent them today. I was thrilled for the opportunity, not only because I have a chance to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ, but to speak for them and that cause as well. I've become committed to it. It's been a long time coming that I've become committed enough to do something. But I want to share with you this morning out of my heart and out of what God has done in my life, um, just some thoughts concerning the issues of the pro-life movement. I know I'm not here to convince an audience that you ought to be pro-life because I know where all of you stand, or at least as far as I would surmise all of you stand. But I think I have some things to share that we all need to hear, including myself. So before we begin, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, 
We're gathered here this morning as your people. We love you. The students that are here today represent young people who've invested their lives to training for whatever it is that you've called them to do from a Christian perspective. The faculty and staff here today represent people who've given their lives to the training of the next generation of Christian leadership. But Father, all of us are here as needy people, as people who love you but are so aware of the fact that we are not what we need to be yet. And so I pray you'll take the moments that we have together and make them a time of reflection upon the principles of your word. And as that's done, I pray that you will make us more like Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a very popular thing today to point out the hypocrisy of our society, and there are lots of ways in which that can be seen. Our society claims to be concerned about children. There are major daycare bills in front of Congress. We have all sorts of child abuse protection laws, and yet... It's interesting that as a society, we spend ten times as much on gambling as we do on the education of children. We say that we believe in a constitutional right to privacy. But at the same time, we have made the publishers of the National Enquirer multi-billionaires. And if you don't think so, just ask Roseanne Barr. The family is a hot political issue. One of the major political parties had a, had a conference two years ago where they gathered all of their leadership and spent a whole weekend figuring, how do we promote the family as one of our big issues? At the same time, our society allows for the breaking up of families in divorce and divorce from the very beginning of the process to the finalizing of the process in the state of California can be accomplished quicker than, it, than the processing of a birth certificate. In fact, in the state of California, a divorce can take place if one person just simply decides, I don't want to be married to this person anymore. Even if the other person wants to fight and wants to do anything, it doesn't matter. It's over. We have a society where the vast majority of our people favor capital punishment, and it is legal, and yet only a few hundred convicted murderers who have shown a wanton disregard for life have faced capital punishment in the past ten years. Their rights are protected to the fullest extent of the law, the law even allows people who are second and third cousins of these people to sue and try and prevent the murder, as they call it, the execution, as I call it, of a murderer simply by saying it creates such stress in the family and their rights need to be protected. I think the most notorious case was that of Gary Gilmore, who was found guilty of murder and convicted to die and selected the firing squad as the method of his execution and he wanted to die and his family could go to court and delay that for years. In the same society, abortion is legal. 1.6 million babies will be aborted this year. And yet, though there have been thousands and thousands of protests, legal and otherwise, against it, Nothing is done to stop the slaughter of the innocents because as far as we're concerned, they have no right. We expect our country to play a key role in the events around the world in various countries of the world, but do you realize most Americans can't find those countries on a map? 
We have a lot to say about what should happen in Afghanistan. We have no idea where it is. But we, we want to say something about it. We've declared war on drugs. But the two most lethal drugs in our society, tobacco and alcohol, are legal and are leading advertisers. We like to think our society has reached an apex of development, and yet I believe it was Gibbon in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. I know a book you've all enjoyed reading recently. Who isolated two, two um, characteristics, and there were a number of them, but two that I thought were interesting that are characteristics of civilizations in decline. One of them was a great increase in entertainment, and one is the idolizing of sport. Does that sound like us? And we see these things and we look at our society and we say, how hypocritical our society says all of these things, but they do something else. But unfortunately, the church is caught up in the spirit of the age. We say that evangelism is why we're here, but we don't witness. We say that we're concerned about missions, but less than 2% of North American Christian resources are spent on world missions. We say that we believe in the power of prayer, but according to one pollster, the average evangelical spends less than two minutes a day in prayer. By the time you pray for three meals, you only got about 45 seconds left. We say that we're committed to the development of Christian leadership, and here I may be meddling, and please don't take this as a criticism of anything or anyone in particular, but as I observe Christian education, I think we, we've just fallen into the same traps that, that the world has fallen into. We, uh, we give four-year scholarships to athletes, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but when was the last time you heard someone say, that kid has got a tremendous potential as a missionary, let's give him a free ride to school. That man could change the kingdom of God as a pastor or a teacher. He's got an amazing mind. Let's, let's, let's take him to school, train him as a Christian leader. Now, we say that we're pro-life and we're committed to the pro-life movement, but the average Christian spends more on chewing gum in a month than we do on anything to do with a pro-life cause. Let me give you an example. The SCV Pregnancy Center here in our valley, which has been operating just about a year out of its office, has a monthly budget of $6,500 a month. $6,500 a month. At present, in our valley, with the churches that we have, there are only seven evangelical churches that have committed themselves at all in terms of regular monthly support, saying no matter what, you are a part of our budget. Only seven. They have a mailing list of 800. That's 800 people who've requested information, yet in January alone there were only 56 individuals who contributed to the support of the center. I praise God for those seven churches and I praise God for the 56. But a, a survey was done in our valley a little while ago that showed that there are, at rough guess, 14,000 evangelical believers in our community. Do you know what it works out to when you say $6,500 a month is their budget and there are 14,000 evangelical believers? you know what that works out to? 50 cents apiece. 50 cents apiece. And yet the center is struggling. I can't tell you all about what it took to get the center started, but I can tell you that they ran into more closed doors than they did open, even among the evangelical churches in our valley. A lot of responses that said, hey, great, but no money was involved. No effort. 
you realize if you've got about 800 students here and then you add in the faculty and the staff, that just the people in this room, just the people in this room, contributing $6.50 a month could completely cover the operating costs of the Christ's Pregnancy Center. $6.50. That's two nights at McDonald's. The bottom line that faces us is that there's a great gap between what we profess and what we do. We will go to our graves as Christians professing that we're pro-life. And I am. I am committed to the pro-life position. And yet, when we look at our lives, we say, what have we done? What steps have we taken to make real what we have said we believe? That gap between what we say and what we do calls into question the depth of our commitment. Either what we say we believe we really don't, or it has no power to change our life. In either case, something is drastically wrong. And I, I guess what I want to do this morning is just help us think. And, and I'm trying to help myself think this through because, believe me, I'm in process in this. But we have to think about just how we measure up when we compare what we say we believe to what we do and how we spend our time and how we spend our resources, not just in the pro-life movement, but in every way. I want to give you five principles, five principles that the Scripture gives us to think about concerning the reality of our faith. And I hope they're helpful to you. They've been helpful in my thinking. They're going to seem very simple, but I think you'll have to agree with me concerning their truthfulness. The first one is found, and you might have guessed this, in James chapter 2. The first one is, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Hebrews, or excuse me, James chapter 2. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Most of you are aware of the fact that this passage and a number of others have been the center of a, of a great debate on the issue of the nature of saving faith. What is it to say that we have saving faith? And I stand squarely with those who would argue that this passage and many others teaches as clearly as can be that a faith that saves is a faith that changes us. If our faith makes no change in the desire of our will to obey God and submit to His authority, then we don't have saving faith. But I guess I want to look at the ramifications of it because look at the illustration James uses to talk about what saving faith is like. He says, if someone comes to you without food or clothing and you don't do something about it. Do you notice here James doesn't say, Faith without works is dead. And then gives an illustration where he says, suppose you see this command of God and you're not sure you want to do it. Well, that's true. Saving faith will make you want to do it. But James understood that to be the case. He put faith in action into a relational setting. He says, suppose someone comes to you and has a need 
If you don't do anything about it, what good is it? And I guess as I look at that, I have to say to myself that the illustration of works here being outward and measurable and relational means that if I say I have faith in anything or I believe something and I hold it as a basic tenet of life and it does not affect what I do or my responses, that statement is a worthless statement. It's a worthless statement. Let me tell you how I became involved in, in the SCV Pregnancy Center. It is not an example of how to do it. It's almost an example of how not to. I came to the valley two and a half years ago to pastor a church. And uh, we were meeting at the time at Hart High School. And we had a rented office. And I am the staff. I am the pastor. And I'm the assistant. And I'm the secretary. And, and I clean up the bathrooms. And, you know, things like that as we're going along. And that's fine. We're, and the Lord is blessing. But as we were in the midst of those early months, as we're trying to get going, got a call from someone who had wanted to see me about a pregnancy center they were trying to start in the valley. And and quite honestly, my, my initial reaction was, oh, they're going to hit me up for money. They're going to want money. And of course, this was a time when as a, as a church, we were trying to get going and trying to get started and, and survival really wasn't in question, but we were wondering how God was going to establish us. And the harder we worked and the harder we worked, we saw God working. But this call came and I, I said, well, I, I can't meet with you this week. How about next? And so we met and this person shared with me the vision that they had for the center. And just left it at that. Just said, we know that you're getting started. And if you don't feel you can help at this point, you don't have to. And I thought to myself, good. So we did. And we went on in time and... Different things began to happen. Different circumstances came up. And slowly it seemed that I was being surrounded by people who were saying, we ought to be doing something more. And as I thought about it, I thought, they're right. But I had to question whether or not I was willing to do anything. I'm one of those people, you know, who sees things on the news as, that's terrible! Somebody ought to do something about it. But I'm not the kind of person who just by nature wants to be the one out there doing something. I want someone else to. I think that's natural. I think many of us are that way. But I began to realize that if I say that I'm pro-life and I say that I'm committed to the unborn and I'm committed to this, to this cause as being part of what it is to be a Christian in our culture... I've got to do more than just say I believe it. And so we began to establish greater contact. And we had a speaker in from the center. And we began to encourage some of our people to be involved. And some of our people became counselors. And we took them on financially. And now we're promoting the walk for life. And I'm walking. I went and bought my new pair of Reeboks to break in to walk this 20-mile thing. I, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I promised all of our people untold blessings if they sponsored me. You know, I don't buy into that theology, but I thought that was a nice general, you know, they're going to be blessed anyway. So I was safe. But all of a sudden I found myself saying, I have to do something. Why? Because I can't just keep saying I believe it and do nothing about it. We can't just keep saying concerning anything about our faith. I'm concerned about the lost and have no contact with them. 
It's always scared me that the statistics tell us that within two years, everybody who becomes a Christian has lost all of their non-Christian friends. It scares me to think that we're raising a generation of people in many of our churches who have no understanding of what the cause of world missions is about. One of the sad things I've come up against is that many of the people I know who've been raised in churches, when you talk about missions, they immediately have the same negative reaction that you may have when I talk about becoming involved in the pro-life movement. They go, oh, missionary. We've got to sing untold millions again. We've got to see slides. And, of course, we were real, the, the real troubling thing was so often the wives were better speakers than the husbands, but we didn't allow women to speak. So, <laughs> you know, we always wanted the wives to give testimonies. And uh, then we'd have to watch these slides of the sunsets. And, you know, and... And the the view of missions has been so skewed by so many that they don't see it as being the heartbeat of God. They see it as being something boring. It concerns me that we talk about love for fellow man, but our churches are about as racially segregated among evangelicalism as they come. I was on staff for seven years at a church that was typical of many big city inner churches. Neighborhood had changed, but the church hadn't. We had a huge suburban congregation that came in every Sunday and left. But we had nobody from the neighborhood coming to the church. The neighborhood was basically black and Hispanic. The church was basically white. I was called to be a youth pastor and uh, one problem was we had no youth. So after going on a few activities by myself, I decided I would start trying to do something to reach the kids in the neighborhood. And uh, the Lord was gracious because he took somebody who made every single mistake you can make in youth ministry, and I made them. I made them all. As a matter of fact, the, the book I should write is What Not to Do in Youth Ministry. Because I did them all wrong, and yet God was gracious and then brought people into my life who showed me how to do right things. And we began to see neighborhood kids come into the youth group. And some of these kids, when they walked into that church building, they had lived there all their lives. They had never seen the inside of that building. They were actually scared of it. Try and break down the barriers, we began to have activities in the sanctuary that were a little bit different. We used to have a home run nerf, nerf ball derby in the sanctuary where you'd stand up on the platform and the team would be sitting in the pews out here And if you could hit it beyond the pews, that was a home run. That counted for your team. And otherwise, you could catch it while they were sitting in the pews. And the best event we had was one I I had heard that they had done back at Willow Creek that we tried. And that was a chariot race using ice blocks down the the, uh, center aisle. We put plastic down and we put ice blocks down. Then a guy had to get on it with his chest. He didn't want to stay there long. And then someone picked up his feet and ran him down the aisle of of the church. It was a great activity. It did not go over well with a blue-haired lady set. Um, but one of the most terrible things that I saw was that as these kids began to come into the church and want to be a part of the church, you know what I began to find? I found that when I sat down with my youth group, you'd find people kind of turning around and looking at them all the time, almost like, what are they doing in our church? And of course, you know, all of us are born with an, with an insatiable desire on Sunday mornings to, to come into a room filled with people and sit still 
quietly for an hour, right? Take someone who's never been in church and you tell them that's what they're going to do. They, they don't really understand that principle. And every time any of them would whisper or say anything, you know, 89 heads. I was asked if I could come up with something a little bit separate for them. You see, we say we believe all of these things, but what are we doing? Are we doing anything positively, measurably, visibly that shows that what we say we believe is real? Faith without works is dead. Second principle goes right along with the first. Savorless salt and hidden light are useless. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Savorless salt and hidden light are useless. Matthew 5:13 You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is calling for a group of followers to make an impact on the world. He wants to see an impact made on the world. That impact comes by letting the world see our good works so that they can glorify the Father in heaven. But you know the amazing thing is Christians have developed a way around that. we found a way to do our good works so that other Christians can see them. We have found ways to gather great groups of Christians to celebrate how good we are doing. How good we are doing. Yes, sir. How well we are doing. But there are no non-Christians there. Not a single non-Christian there. You know, we'd have the same 70, 80 Christians come out. Every, that didn't keep the pastor from giving an invitation every Sunday night and singing 13 verses of whatever we were singing that night. You know, you begin to wonder, does he, does he not think I'm saved? You know, you look around, there isn't a single new face there. All the adult men are on the board. You know, all the women are deaconesses. All the kids are the children of those people. We've done the same thing with a lot of our good works. We do them in Christian settings. We do them in Christian groups. We do them in Christian atmospheres. We even aim a lot of our relief efforts to groups of Christians rather than to the world. If we're not doing good works out where the world can see them, the world can't begin to see the Father behind those works in our lives. I have to move on because the fifth principle is the one I really want to talk about the most of what's left. So let me move on. Number three. Number three. I cannot withhold good from those who deserve it. I cannot withhold good from those who deserve it. Proverbs 3.27 tells us that. That's exactly what it says. Proverbs 3.27. Do not Withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power 
to act. Next verse. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it with you now. Boy, that hits me where I live. Especially when I lived back in San Bernardino and we were part, as I said, of an inner city church. And uh, there probably were like not more than two days in a row that would go by without having somebody come up and ask you for help, ask you for money, ask you for food. Living here in the kingdom of Yup, that doesn't happen so often. It happens some. But you begin to get hard with all these people asking you for things and you begin to pull away and say, oh, man, they're probably going to take advantage of me again. But you notice it says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it. Who deserves good? Who deserves good? Well, unfortunately, the more you study Scripture, the more you find that just about everybody does. Your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Whoever comes your way. Do not withhold good. Do you think that the people involved in the pro-life movement deserve your support? I think they do. Do you think the unborn deserve your support? Do you think they deserve good? I think they do. And you see, they're in that very unique position of being absolutely powerless to do anything for themselves. Don't withhold good. Fourth principle. I must uphold all other parts of the body of Christ. I must uphold all other parts of the body of Christ. Scripture there, Romans chapter 12, very familiar passage, beginning at verse 3 through verse 8. And I'm not going to read it, but basically there it's describing the fact that we shouldn't think of ourselves higher than we ought, but ought to think with sound or sober judgment. Then it describes the fact that to each of us a measure of faith God has given, and He's given each of us gifts in the body. And He says in verse 4, just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I have a claim on you, and you have a claim on me, because we are members of the body of Christ, and we belong to each other. Now, I want to add, and I don't want—I I would not want you thinking I believe that every fight that the body of Christ is involved in is your fight. I do not believe that every single cause that is part and parcel of being a Christian in this society is what you should be dedicating your life to. I am not a pro-life activist in the sense that that is what my life revolves around. I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, my heart goes out to shepherding the people that God has given me, to training them, to discipling them, to seeing people come to Christ. That is where the focus of my energies go. But as a member of the body of Christ, recognizing that the body of Christ as a whole is involved in conflict with Satan on all sorts of fronts, I've got to realize that there are certain battles being fought I may not be directly involved in, but that there are times when I can take a stand and let them know I support you. I am with you. I think the Walk for Life is an excellent opportunity for you to do that. You may have no other major activity or commitment 
to the pro-life movement, but just being there will let the community know and it will let workers know. It will let volunteers who are giving 10 to 20 or 30 hours a week to the center that there are a group of Christians in their community that care what happens, that care about the battle of their fighting. Missionaries, when they come to speak to you, are not expecting that every one of you will become a missionary. But there are times when every one of you can stand with them and come to them and say, I know what you're doing and I support you and I am behind you and I am praying with you. Every member of the body of Christ must uphold the other parts of the body. Last principle. Giant challenges can be overcome. My scripture there is 1 Samuel 17. Story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17 tells us about a giant challenge being faced by Israel, a physical giant, a man who was nine foot six. I'm sure that if we could have gotten him saved, he'd have been a great basketball player. But he was nowhere near regeneration. Goliath was an idolater and an opponent of the people of God. And he came before the armies of God and says, I defy you to send down someone in one-to-one combat and whoever wins, that army wins. And the army of Israel was paralyzed. The king of Israel was paralyzed who should have gone out. We know that Saul from earlier in in the chapters in Samuel was the tallest man Israel had. It says he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was the likely one, but... He wasn't going to go. No one else in the army was real excited about the prospects either, so they just... It's, this is an interesting account. You'll have to read it. It says that every day they put on their battle array, they marched out singing their war chants and war cries, and they'd get out there, we're number one, we're number one. Goliath say, I defy you. And they say, two is not bad. And they'd come marching back and they'd give up and they would just sit back there bemoaning the fact that Nothing really could be done. So a young boy came to visit his brothers and bring supplies. And when that boy showed up bringing those supplies, he heard the challenge and he said, what's going on here? He said, who is this Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? So, of course, you know what happened. They all rallied around David, right? Wrong. The first thing that happened was they all criticized. What are you doing here? You just came so you could see the battle. In which case, he was grossly disappointed because there was none. He said, you just want to get away from shepherding. You just want to, to be here where the excitement of the action is. After they got over the criticisms, they told him he couldn't do it because he was too small. He was too young. Then Saul said, well, all right, if you're going to do it, you've got to wear my armor which didn't work because Saul was tall and David was not. You all know the rest of the story. David says, I can't wear this. He said, I'll go in the strength of God. He said, I've killed a bear and a lion. The Lord will deliver this Philistine into my hand. And so he goes with his sling and his stones. And he says to that nine foot six giant, 
All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And he wins. David was a victorious minority of one. I'm convinced that one of the reasons the body of Christ right now is becoming more and more inactive in some areas is because we believe that we are fighting a losing battle in the world here. Some of it may be our theology, I don't know. You know, I'm a pre-trib, pre-mill person and all of this, but I'm afraid that I, I pick up from some of us who have that theology an idea, oh, this world is getting so bad, the Lord's just got to come soon. He's got to get us out of here. It's, uh, everything's just getting so bad. You know, the Lord may leave us here for a good 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We just don't know how long. And we somehow have decided that perhaps issues like pro-life are, are losing. After all, look what's happen, happening politically. Some of the people we thought are our friends are turning away from the position. The press is giving us a harder time. Things like Operation Rescue have come along and have clouded the issue because they've made the opponents to abortion all look like extremists who defy the government, when in fact, that is not all of us. And I think some of us are backing off because we may not really think we can win this one. But if we are backing off, it's because we've lost the perspective that giant challenges can be overcome when we recognize the battle is God. Do you realize that in fighting against abortion, we are not fighting a political issue? We're fighting a spiritual one. We're fighting for the fact that God has said every life is valuable because He is the source of life. Life does not begin at conception, my friends. Life begins in the decree of God before time begins. And every life that comes into being does so because God has decided it will come into being. Conception is not an accident that takes place because of physical intercourse. Conception is something that takes place because God has opened a womb. And when we take a stand... For life, we're not taking a stand because it is the better political judgment. We're not taking the stand because it's a moral judgment. We're not taking the stand just because we think we can win. We're taking the stand because it is right. And if we can't do that, then we've got to ask ourselves if we have real faith. Because at any point where we're willing to say there is a spiritual principle here, there is a spiritual truth that is clear in the Word of God that I will not stand up for. We've got to ask ourselves, how real is our faith? In Hebrews 11, we're told of men who by faith conquered armies, men who by faith offered the right sacrifices, slew giants, withstood trials and temptations, we know that by faith, men in recent history like William Wilberforce have stood almost single-handedly against such things as the slave trade. And Wilberforce, on his own at first, and over 20, 30, and then 40 years, managed to see slavery abolished in England. 
we know that today giant challenges can be overcome. Most of us have not ever heard of Laszlo Tokes. Laszlo Tokes, and I'm probably not pronouncing the name right because it's a, Roman, a Hungarian-Romanian name, but Laszlo Tokes was the pastor or is the pastor of the Hungarian Reformed Church in a city, and I believe it's pronounced Timisara, Romania. He and his congregation took a stand against what the secret police were doing in their town of just randomly arresting and harassing Hungarian emigrants who were living in Romania. And they stated their opposition to the Securitat, the secret police. On December 16th of last year, the Securitat made it known that they were going to arrest the pastor. His congregation, fearing for his life and believing they needed to take a stand with him, came and by the hundreds, they formed a barrier around him so that the secret police could not get to him. This was on December 16th. The secret police opened fire. It aroused the entire city. And then it aroused the entire province. And then it aroused the entire country. For friends, that was the one incident that began the protests that on December 25th brought about the overthrow of the Romanian government. Because one congregation and one pastor took a stand that they believed God wanted them to take. In a society where for 40-some years taking that stand meant death, they took it anyway. I don't know what's going to happen in our society because we take a stand. But I know what God's Word tells me I need to do. I need to make my faith real in what I do. It needs to be seen in how I live. What are my priorities? What are my actions? Where do I spend my money? How real is your faith? 